Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Are we alone? That's the perennial question. We've been asking it for, oh, probably since we walked out of our caves and looked up at the stars. Jill Tarter has been asking that question as part of her career. She holds the Bernard M. Oliver Chair for SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. She's been working on these issues since she was a graduate student. Jill Tarter, thanks for talking with me. It's my pleasure. So 1979, you, you sort of uh, got enthralled with the question, is that right? Actually, a few years earlier, more like 1976, uh, 75, I was um, a graduate student at Berkeley and had been for a very long time. Um, my first year there, which was 68, I learned how to program the first desktop computer we ever had called a PDP-8S. Now, I always thought the S stood for stupid because <laughs> this machine had 11 instructions and no language. So it was a marvel at 64K of memory. Um, and you programmed it in Octal. So I had an uh, assistantship and I learned how to program that to uh, operate a spectrometer at a optical telescope the university had that students used. And then many years later, that became an obsolete piece of gear. And it was given to Stu Boyer, an X-ray astronomer, who had hooked up with Jack Welch, who was the director of Berkeley's Radio Astronomy Lab. And Stu had this clever idea about how to do a piggyback SETI observation, how to um, reanalyze data that uh, astronomers were taking on the radio telescope and look for signals. He had no money, so he went borrowing and begging equipment, and this old computer was part of what he was given, and he didn't know what to do with it, but somebody reminded him that I had once uh, programmed it, and he came knocking on my door and recruited me to work with his project, which we called Serendip, and I, you know, I just got so hooked, um, and I've stayed hooked. How come? Well, what? So we've been asking this question for a really long time. And for millennia, who did we ask? We asked the priests and the philosophers and the shamans, anybody we thought was wise, right? And an answer that you got back was based on their belief system. So somebody was telling you what they believed and what you should believe. I was struck by the fact that in the middle of the 20th century, we suddenly had some tools left over from the Second World War, radio telescopes, um, with which we could try and do an observation or an experiment to answer this question, rather than having to take someone's belief. Let's figure out what is, not what somebody says it is. And so I, was, I had the right background in engineering and astronomy at the right time and here were some new tools and a completely new opportunity to um, try and answer a very old question. Wouldn't you do it? I mean, it's, it's, I couldn't think of a better way to spend a scientific career. Yes, I would do it. I am curious, though, reading this excellent SETI.org webpage, one of the uh, places you can track is to look at the question itself and the Fermi paradox. And, mm -hmm. and we'll explain what the Fermi paradox is, first of all. Um, the Fermi paradox is, first, I have to 
a disclaimer. I don't believe it qualifies in the philosophical classification as paradox. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> yes. But here is what it is. Enrico Fermi came to lunch at Los Alamos one day and said, where is everybody? And his colleagues who knew what, what he was thinking about understood that he was making the argument, why don't we see evidence of advanced technologies? And he argued that it had taken so little time um, from the development of science to having the ability, uh, we were bearing on the brink of space travel, that if at any time, at any place in the galaxy, there had been an advanced uh, a technology, another technology, they would have developed the capability for space travel and they would inevitably use it. And then you can have a lot of different models about how they would colonize the galaxy. And you get order a few orders of magnitude difference in the time it would take for every place in the galaxy to be occupied. And all answers come up with times that are much shorter than the lifetime of the galaxy. And then you say, well, but they're not here, which means that my initial premise has to be wrong, that there never was another technological civilization at any time, any place in the galaxy. We're the first. That's um, what the Fermi paradox is all about. And the reason that I, I stand up and say, no, no, wait, it isn't a paradox, is because it rests on the statement, but they're not here. And that statement is not one for which there is um, overwhelming evidence. And I don't mean that it's little green men in spaceships abducting Aunt Alice from the streets of New York City for salacious medical experiments. I simply mean that we have so poorly explored even our own local neighborhood, our, our back doorstep, the solar system, that we can't say with any certainty that there aren't forms of advanced technologies out there. We've, we know how hard it is to find great big rocks that could do us in out there. We've looked at a few places in the Lagrange points of our solar system, of our Earth, Sun, Earth, Moon systems, stable gravitational points. We've, we've looked with starlight illumination. We've used a little bit of radar to examine those. And basically, we could probably say there are no big, shining battleship galacticas out there. But we can't say anything about small, dark objects anywhere. We just can't make that they're not here statement. And also, with respect to SETI, um, evidence of someone else's technology, optical signals, radio signals, we haven't found any. But on the other hand, we really haven't looked very thoroughly yet. And so that's my take on the Fermi experiment, uh, the Fermi paradox. It isn't, ex it isn't a paradox yet. And the, the wisest thing that's ever been written or said about this question is the last sentence of the very first paper on SETI, 
in the journal Nature in 1959, where Giuseppe Cacconi and Phil Morrison said, let's see, the probability of success is difficult to estimate, but if we never search, the chance is zero. I think we, this question deserves some real serious searching. What kind of technologies are we employing now that, uh, that are doing a better job of uh, scanning the universe? Well, we're using the technologies of the 21st century because that's what we have. And in particular, we're using radio telescopes to try and detect signals that are compressed in frequency, that are narrow and show up at only one channel on the radio dial, because nature doesn't do that. It spreads its energy over lots of different frequency channels. And we're using optical telescopes to look for signals that are compressed in time. So bright flashes of light that last a billionth of a second or less. As far as we know, nature can't do that either, but pulsed lasers do it very well. Now, those are good guesses from our point of view here in the 21st century. It may be totally ludicrous to an advanced technology. They may say, well, it's obvious you use zeta rays. <laughs> but, but we don't know what zeta rays are. We haven't invented or discovered them yet, so we can't do that. We use the tools that we have, and the wonderful thing is that our tools benefit enormously from this exponential improvement in computing technologies that we're all benefiting with from or struggling with um, today. We can do more searching faster um, than ever before because of computing. We do have a conundrum, though, right? On the one hand, what are we... Uh... 80-plus years out of our own radio signals reaching out into uh, the nearest stars. But the universe is so old that uh, when, we, when and if we ever do see something, we'll be looking at their past. That's absolutely correct. And again, Phil Morrison had a lovely way of saying that. He talked about SETI being the archaeology of the future. So the archaeology piece is exactly what you said. Any signals that we detect and there's information encoded in those signals, they will have been traveling at the finite speed of light over vast distances between the stars. And so they, any information will tell us about their past. But the fact that we can detect a signal tells us that on average, technological civilizations managed to survive for a long time. We're a very young technology in a very old galaxy, and we don't know whether it's going to be possible for us to grow old as a technological civilization, old in cosmic timescales. But if we were ever to detect a signal, we know that someone else made it through. We know on average the longevity of technologies is very large. And so we know, even if we can't decipher any information, that it is possible for us to have a long future. And I think that would be enormous motivation for us to get our act together and figure out what the solution is, since we know there is one. You know, Jill Tarter, what's the, what's the science of our own uh, signals as they move out into the universe, into the galaxies and more galaxies, do they at some point recede into the background and therefore 
I mean, could there be civilizations very, very far away that maybe had signals but have disappeared or dissipated? Um, it's signals do, in fact, get weaker as they travel away from their origin. And it is very possible that we have already done the absolutely perfect search. We've looked in the right direction at the right time with the right tools, but we failed to detect a signal simply because we didn't have sufficient sensitivity. The signals are weak, and with our current technology and telescopes, we couldn't detect them. So it is true that signals get weaker as they go farther away from their origin. And we hope that what we're doing today or do tomorrow will be of sufficient sensitivity that even though the signals are weak, we will be able to detect them. And that's, again, all about computing and the technologies of building radio receivers and optical receivers, telescopes. Now I was reading the uh, New York Times when you, uh, when you stepped down from your, from your directorship. And uh, the article said the three times uh, Dr. Tartar says she thought we had made contact. But, as you had said and the reporter said, hard-boiled caution prevailed. What, what happened in these times? Well, what happened is my heart rate got a lot faster. That's for sure. Um, it's, it's quite an experience to think that you might actually have detected what you were trying to find. But we have to be very self-critical in this process. We have to check it out. We have to try and prove ourselves wrong. We try all kinds of different things to try and understand what that signal actually is. We go through a checklist of things when an interesting signal shows up. And unfortunately, in each of these three cases, we were able to show that the technology was our own. It wasn't actually an extraterrestrial technology, and we could understand how it was fooling our automated detection systems. And then we changed our system, our scheme, so that we wouldn't be fooled in the same way again. Wow. You know, uh, SETI was, had, had government funding, and then in the, what was it, 93, uh, the government uh, terminated funding for SETI, and it had, a, it had a struggle, but then it found support. How is the, the kind of support you get from nonprofits, foundations, institutions, changed your thinking about doing the science? First of all, we have been supported more by individual philanthropists rather than institutions, although we've had both kinds of support. Um, we have been fortunate in the sense that no one who has ever provided or offered to provide funding for us has put any restrictions on we have to do this or we have to um, tell them first if we find a signal or put any conditions on the funding because we frankly would would turn it down. Um, this should be conducted just like any other scientific exploration. Um, and so I don't think that it's changed the way we've done 
the science, it has enabled more or less searching at any moment, depending on where we are on the roller coaster of funding. Are we, do we have a lot of funds and we're involved in constructing new instruments and trying out new search strategies? Or are we just scraping by, which is unfortunately where we are today um, in, in need of philanthropic support in order to keep the searches going and to be able to execute on new bright ideas. Do you, do you have a hard time uh, selling the notion of pure research, which is what this is what this is, uh, to uh, you know the hard-nosed uh, philanthropists who, who want to say, uh, what, what are you going to accomplish that I can put on my bottom line for the people I serve? Sure. It's, um, I can't promise a return on investment next quarter, right? right. Um, the, ultimately, this is, this is a huge payoff in terms of return on investment for the human race. Uh, but maybe not next quarter, maybe not next decade, uh, maybe never. But it is an exploration. And individuals have funded exploration um, quite uh, substantially throughout our history. And, and so we try to uh, share with potential supporters, our excitement and the potentials and the possibilities. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and uh, Craig Ventner and Daniel Cohen wrote a paper that says, 21st century is the century of biology. But I think that isn't a bold enough vision. I think that it's absolutely the case that the 21st century is the century of biology on Earth and beyond. I think that's what we have to look forward to in this century. And um, you have to be pretty incurious not to get excited by that prospect, not to, be, not to want to be part of making it happen. What does the, uh, the emerging science and the, and the ever stronger science of astrobiology, what has that lent to the SETI search, and maybe what has SETI, the SETI search lent to astrobiology? Well, there have been two game changers during my career. One is exoplanets, and the second is extremophiles, types of life living in environments which, when I was a student, um, it was absolutely clear life would be absolutely impossible in those environments. Well, we were wrong. And I love the fact that the search for planets orbiting other stars actually originated within NASA, within the SETI program. Because when we got thinking about this, it was pretty important to know whether there are planets around other stars, because life as we know it is a planetary phenomenon, right? Life um, originated and evolved on a planet and was very strongly sculpted by the nature of that planet. And in return, life has profoundly changed the planet. So planets were important to us. And we started very early on in the process of the NASA program, um, started holding workshops on the technologies for detecting extrasolar planets. 
And then when Senator Proxmire back in the early 80s decided to give NASA a Golden Fleece Award for the SETI program, <laughs> thinking that it was a waste of taxpayers' money looking for little green men. It's so easy to make fun of this. Um, John Billingham, who was leading the effort within NASA, did something quite wise. He said to David Black, who was at uh, NASA Ames at the time, David, would you take the exoplanet piece of this um, research over into the space sciences so that it won't be tarred and feathered by the rest of the SETI effort and um, political attacks on it. And so that's where um, exoplanet detection got started. Bill Baruki um, wrote a paper at that time under this group, the aegis of this group. Um, 25 years, almost to the day, before the Kepler spacecraft actually launched. So SETI has helped in the exoplanet discovery and exoplanets incredibly abundant. Almost every star is going to have a planetary system and maybe 20% of them are going to have an Earth-sized planet at a reasonable distance from the star. So potentially an atmosphere and liquid water are possible on that planet. So that's good. I mean, it could have gone the other way. As we explored for planets around other stars, we might have found that the formation of planetary systems was extraordinarily unlikely. Nope, didn't turn out that way. And with the extremophiles, um, I think microbes are finally getting the respect they deserve. And <laughs> we're beginning to lose this privileged position that we hold in our mind about the ascent of man. And when we talk about life, we're really talking about us. Well, it's not that at all. There is this amazing, amazing uh, diversity of life, beautifully evolved and suited to living um, in extreme conditions, extreme by human standards, not by theirs. They're fat, dumb, and happy where they are. So what extremophiles have showed us is that potentially there's more habitable real estate out there than we once might have envisioned. Just even the idea that there could be life in between the stars. I mean, we just don't know. We, we don't. And so one of our biases, we have a chauvinism for water, right? Mm. We have a bias for planetary or solid surfaces. But uh, one of the really great science fiction books of all time was Fred Hoyle's Black Cloud. Yeah. And that intelligent... Uh, life form didn't require a planet. So you were talking about uh, people stepping up, philanthropists stepping up, coming to Seattle, be in Seattle. Paul Allen uh, has, uh, who, who is somebody who's intrigued by these notions. He's, he's helped fund the next evolution in the, in the, in the technology for the SETI search. What is, what is happening with the Allen array? What is it? Um, well, Paul Allen provided the funding for the research and development and the first construction, the first phase of construction of what we call the Allen Telescope Array. It's an array that simulates a large radio telescope by building it out of many small telescopes. So we connect these small telescopes together with a huge amount of computing. So this large number of small dishes, LNSD array, is something that we couldn't have done 
decades ago because we just didn't have the compute power. And so in 2000, Mr. Allen listened to us tell him that we thought we could do it now. And we thought we knew how to do it. So Paul funded the R&D, basically telling us, show me. And then when we, in fact, came back to him and said, okay, we can do this, we can. <laughs> this is how. Uh, and this is how much it's going to cost. And of course, of course, it cost more than we, we thought it would initially, but that's the way most things go. Um, Paul then said, okay, I will fund the first phase of construction and you go out and find other people to join to um, build it out. So we got to 42 telescopes and sort of we ultimately would like to have 350 or 500 telescopes. We, but if you have to stop somewhere short of that, 42 is kind of an iconic number. And uh, we inaugurated this telescope in 2007 and have been using it ever since to do um, traditional radio astronomy and SETI simultaneously. And we now have a partnership with um, SRI International, who maintains and operates the telescope for us. And we give them half the time, and they have customers for um, other uses for the telescope. So we are still very eager to build it out. Right at the moment, we're actually, um, thanks to another very generous philanthropist, um, Franklin Antonio from Qualcomm, uh, we are building a new set of receivers uh, for each of the telescopes. And these receivers will cover a larger frequency range and they will be more sensitive than the ones we currently have. But anyone who would like to help us build out the array, we're always eager to have that discussion. And in the meantime, we use it every day. When was the last time you were up there and what, what were you looking at? What were you listening for? Where were you well, pointed? Yeah. Um, right now we are pointing at the exoplanet systems. So we're pointing where we know there are exoplanets. We're, and Kepler is a particularly efficient way of searching because within 100 square degrees on the sky, there are 4,000 plus exoplanets. So it, we can observe very efficiently. I think we're about to take the lesson that Kepler has given us, which is that almost all stars will have planetary systems, and change our targets to much stars that are much closer. Right? Um, those will mainly be stars that are significantly smaller than our sun, dwarf stars. Um, there may be pluses and there may be minuses, about whether these are good hosts for uh, long-lived life uh, biology on, on planets around them. But it's, um, it's a way to maximize our sensitivity. So if we look nearby, we can detect fainter signals than we could detect um, coming from the distant Kepler exoplanet systems. You know, as part of the, uh, the Ted Prize wish you uh, partnered with Zooniverse and TED, the SETI Institute, and you launched SETI Live, which incorporates citizens into the scientific exploration. How does that work? It does. Um, it follows in a long tradition that I think was started by Berkeley SETI at Home Project. And we took data, raw data, from the telescope 
and put it in the cloud in real time and asked individuals on their browsers, on their computers, to look at these data that are displayed as two-dimensional graphs of frequency versus time and to mark any patterns they saw. We were wondering whether the human eye would be able to find patterns that we had not programmed our computers to find. And people did this. Um, and we worked with Zooniverse. I think this is the first time, in fact, I know it's the first time that they ever had a real-time turnaround because we had to get the data into the cloud. We had to get it in front of people all within 90 seconds because that's our processing cadence. And it, it worked well. Uh, we have recently discontinued it because A, we weren't finding any unusual patterns, and B, it gets kind of boring to sit in front of your screen and see noise, 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 noise. Oh, I've seen that, but it's interference because I can see it in other places. So we realized that although it's fun for sh in short bursts, it's hard to get people to attend to it uh, continuously. And so our thought now is what we really need to do is move this onto a mobile platform, right? So if you're standing in line at the bank, you can do it for a few minutes. But that's a big challenge because we're asking you to find patterns with your eye on a big computer screen. That's one thing, but moving it to a small handheld device you, the resolution is is challenged, and, and so we're thinking about a better way to do that. And I'm very hopeful that sometime in the future we'll go back to Galaxy Zoo and say, let's relaunch this, but relaunch it in a mobile universe. Well, it's kind of an exciting challenge. I like the notion of it. You know, I, I, I also watched you, uh, heard you talk with uh, Stuart Brand on the Long Now Foundation, and those guys are looking at 10,000 years into the future. They're thinking about how to, how to protect and preserve uh, nuclear waste, but that got them thinking about all sorts of ways that we think about uh, the long term. Is this a long-term uh, exploration for us? Could be. Um, I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know the answer. I mean, tonight, when we're looking at exoplanet systems in the Kepler field, we could detect a signal. Um, maybe not until tomorrow or next month, or maybe my granddaughter will be the one to find a signal, or maybe never. We do think about the future. We make plans for how much better we can do what we're doing now, and we're always thinking about what other things that we could do that make sense. Um, you know, we always reserve the right to get smarter in how we do this. So I don't know the answer to your question. Yeah. Well, you're training young scientists. You're introducing young scientists to these ideas. You're involved in the Life in the Universe series. That's the way of keeping these ideas uh, moving forward from generation to generation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, training our replacements is something that we um, very much enjoy doing. And there's something in that um, where we can take universities as an example. So SETI is a bit of a scientific risk. You know, you you may spend your career developing new technologies, um, new capabilities, and writing papers about null results. That's not always what people are excited by. 
Um, so bringing new people in, we're kind of asking them to to take the step into a little bit non-traditional scientific exploration. And as we do that, we also, it's not fair to ask them to put their family's well-being at risk. So we want to be able to offer a stable financial uh, environment for young people who begin uh, careers in, in this field. And that's what's been missing in, throughout my career. We look at universities and we think about endowments. If I don't find a signal by the end of my life, I'm at least hopeful that I can be part of raising an endowment so that this kind of exploratory, risky scientific exploration can continue to go forward as long as it needs to, and that the people who do it uh, don't have to sacrifice making a living. You know, Jill Tarter, a few years ago in the New York Times, uh, the reporter started his article about your stepping down from the directorship of, of SETI. started the article by saying, Jill Tarter once complained to me that she had no poetry in her soul. But when I listen to you, and I imagine you stepping outside from the the observatory and just looking up at the stars, it's all poetry. I love it. I really do. I think what I was, what I was complaining or, or talking about was that I tend to approach it day to day as an engineer, as a scientist, you know, what, what am I going to do next? What's working? What's not working? How do we raise money for this? Um, it's all very mundane. Um, but yes, I've been extraordinarily privileged to have a career as a scientist, um, to have a career working on a question that is important to everyone and actually impacts everyone. It's a real privilege. Um, and when I speak to young people, I try and remember to tell them that that's one of the reasons to enter science or engineering as a career, because you get to pose the questions that you want to find answers to. You get to maybe understand something that no one else has ever been able to figure out before. And wow, that sure beats punching in a clock and doing what your boss says. Dr. Tarter, thank you very much for talking with me. Okay, it was my pleasure. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association.